At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. We are hours away from the end of 2020. Congrats. We have almost made it. Later in today's show, we are going to revisit a few moments from this podcast throughout the year. But first, we're going to hear from someone who's been on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic in South Carolina. Frontline workers were the Post and Courier's newsmakers of the year. We wanted to hear a first-person perspective of what it's been like to care for COVID patients in South Carolina. We spoke with an infectious disease physician from a local hospital system about what this year has been like for himself and his colleagues and what he's concerned about as we head into the new year and the coronavirus continues to spread rapidly. Dr. Kent Stock. I'm one of the staff infectious disease physicians at Roper St. Francis Healthcare and have been largely helping to direct the COVID response for our organization since its inception in March. So I think one of the things that's difficult for people to grasp and understand, especially as this number keeps growing, is just how many people we have lost to the coronavirus this year. How do you process that? How do you think of that and try to wrap your head around those numbers? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Every time you turn on the TV and you see the update on CNN or one of the other news channels, uh, the figures are are staggering. Um, Even in the medical realm where we see death commonly every day, the thing that I think is different about this is just how inept many of us felt in the beginning where we had some sense that this was coming, but obviously in the beginning, many of us thought it was nothing more than a simple cold. And as we learn more about Italy's experience, some of the European countries, we got some firsthand knowledge that this thing was very, very potent. Uh, Initially, we had to come to grips with what we were dealing with and Fortunately, in the Charleston area, it was something that happened incrementally rather than in New York, where it was just simply thrust upon them. Well, at least in Charleston, we were able to prepare a little bit. Certainly, when the governor shut things down, we happened to be out in front of the the pandemic locally, and, and you saw the numbers dramatically improve. The problem was, is obviously when he remove those restrictions on May 1st, uh, we pulled the dogs off way too early, so to speak. And that's what ultimately led to our huge surge in July, extending into August. And that's where we really felt uh, locally the impact of this pandemic. You know, in the beginning, within Roper St. Francis, where we had four hospitals we decided we would focus our energy, our efforts at Roper Proper and Roper Mount Pleasant to cohort the patients in part to try and limit transmission within the hospital system, but also uh, 
to try and, um, you know, focus our resources, our intellectual talent, our, you know, growing experience with the limited drugs that were out there at the time when there was very few studies to guide decision making to simply get better caring for these people and using a team-based approach. And in the beginning, we were able to do that and, and do that fairly successfully. And then the numbers just became overwhelming. And we began to admit in place where each hospital in our system would admit positive patients that came through their ER. And quite frankly, we got overwhelmed. I mean, we definitely saw the impact on our providers, our ancillary staff, the the emotional, the physical toll it took, you know, when you were admitting 10 to 15 people a night and five of those were on a ventilator. And, and one of the issues with this disease is nobody gets, nobody gets better quickly. You know, once you're on the ventilator, it was on average, you were on the ventilator on average for 14 days within our institution. So the likelihood you were going to be hospitalized for almost a month even the people who were on moderate amounts of oxygen spent on average nine, 10 days in the hospital. So as you can, as you can understand, it, it, it created difficulty with bed management. It created difficulty with, you know, nurse staffing issues. And so we really felt it. And for about a six to eight week period, it was brutal. I mean, I had to call several of my retired physicians out and, and thankfully each of them responded and was kind enough to round three, four days a week at some of the Roper facilities to provide infectious disease care to these individuals who so badly needed it. And, and many physicians who were not necessarily trained in these immediate areas pitched in and were willing to help. And you saw the same thing with staff members. Uh, you know, as an infectious disease physician, I would never consider myself a hero because this is what I was trained to do. Like if you're going to war, you have a military personnel who is trained to accomplish the objectives of our military leaders. And, you know, that's who I was. I always had a suspicion something like this would happen. But each day in my training or during my normal practice, you prepare for things like this. So I I was ready to go for it, to be very honest with you. But to see how many other people stepped up, whether it was the chaplain, the discharge planner, the palliative care personnel, Dr. Hawk, a retired surgeon, his job was basically to call family members every day. He simply reached out because the families were not able to see their, their loved ones in the hospital because of the restrictions in place. He provided that avenue of communication to them to give them timely feedback on their status. So it was a, a very incredible experience to see all these people around you rise to the occasion. And then obviously that large surge subsided over time and we saw a steady flow of patients during that period of time. And while other parts of the country were, were steadily increasing, we remained stable for about two months. And then unfortunately, um, in the last four weeks, we've seen steady increase in our numbers. You know, it, it really has been an incredible grind. I mean, I'm someone who doesn't tend to get very emotional. I, I, I think I've told so many people here till I'm blue in the face. I don't think I cried, um, you know, 
maybe 30 years ago for some assorted reason, maybe the loss of my grandparents or something. But I've cried on multiple occasions because of, you know, working tirelessly to care for people, particularly some ones that I had a connection with, a nurse, uh, some family friends who were hospitalized, and then ultimately losing those individuals after a lengthy struggle to keep them alive and ultimately get them better. So I think it's it's still going to take some time to really digest what's happened. We're, we're obviously still in the middle of this, but, you know, we've had over 1,600, 1,700 patients come through our doors since March, and I've been involved with all of them, either directly or indirectly. And so I have a real good feel for the beast, as I call it, you know, this viral pathogen that is a very, very formidable foe. And um, the more I get to know it, the more it, it impresses me and how malleable, how resilient this thing is. You've made that, that comparison to, to war a few times. And I think it's probably worth noting that when we're talking about the loss of life, that's comparable to a, a conflict too, right? Absolutely. You know, when you look at the number of deaths, you know, within this country, you know, in excess of what now, 300,000 individuals, that, you know, puts even what we lost in World War II, uh, you know, Vietnam War, Korean War, certainly the Iraq Wars. I mean, the only thing comparable is obviously the Civil War, and I'm not intimately familiar with the numbers that were lost, but, uh, you know, it, it was in the hundreds of thousands and, and we're still going. And so, you know, by the time March 1st rolls around, it may be the greatest loss of life in a single year that the United States of America has ever incurred. You know, it, it's staggering. And so the mindset of people has to be like military warfare, where you have an objective, and, and, and that objective is obviously to save lives. And then you have to figure out a process. And, you know, the, the federal leadership was poor. And I'm a Republican, and, and I would say that the public health response was poor at the federal, at the state, to some degree, the local levels. And there was no consensus. There was no uniformity. There was no camaraderie. It was politics at play. And that became somewhat detrimental to our overall effort to save people. And uh, that's why so many physicians were outspoken during the fall election, because they had very strong opinions about what they did experience the seven, eight months prior, and how they felt politics played a role in that uh, experience. But the truth is, is that when you go to battle against something you know, you have responsibilities and there's a hierarchy of leadership. And within my own healthcare system, we had that leadership. You had your, you know, CEO, your chief physician officer, your chief medical officers, your chief nursing officer, and together they laid the groundwork for me to be successful. We hold our head high because while obviously there's a tremendous amount of death that's occurred, particularly in ventilated patients, the performance at Roper St. Francis Healthcare was much better than the national average. You said you were involved 
at least in some way, with all about 1,600 or so uh, COVID patients. Can you describe the emotional toll that you observed in, in terms of your colleagues, but then also yourself? In the beginning, you treated these individuals like any doctor does. You distance yourself from the patient to some degree because you know you're dealing with life or death. And if you get wrapped up in the death element, you become very emotional and you can't be an objective thinker. You can't, you know, make decisions quickly and concisely, rationally, if you allow yourself to become emotionally attached to the person you're judging because people will die. And none of us are gods. You know, we all make mistakes. We see it every day. You know, physicians are human too. You make decisions based on the circumstances that they present themselves and you and you learn from your mistakes. And so in this world where there was no roadmap, we did that. And and so, you know, for the most part, I was able to, you know, keep my distance, but there were several for example, a nurse I took care of from another hospital that, you know, they asked me to take her on as her primary physician. She was critically ill on the ventilator at another hospital. She was one of them. They they did not want her to die on their footsteps. You know, they said we could not live with that fact. And so they implored me to take her to Roper, which I did. You know, for 10 days, she was on the ventilator each day getting a little bit better I mean, she followed a textbook uh, recovery, and then on the 10th day, we extubated her, and we were joyous, and, and um, you know, I, I quietly to myself said, you know, that was a win, you know, that was a win, and I left the floor and rounded on another floor, and within a couple hours, heard a code blue you know, and it was coming from the COVID unit and went down there and found out that this nurse was being coded by the team because once she had been extubated, she developed some distress from her upper airway swelling um, and couldn't breathe. And so the critical care doctors were able to get her reintubated back on the ventilator, but unfortunately, uh, she had what we think was a, an acute heart attack. And basically, her heart completely stopped, and we coded her for almost an hour, couldn't get her back. You know, that tore me up. I mean, I cried like a baby for an extended period. And, you know, it was really tough to talk to the husband because her daughter was a nurse at the same hospital, you know, someone I also knew, and I knew how heartbreaking it would be to her. You know, I know they didn't look at me as as being, you know, anything other than who I was, but I felt that I had let them down. And, you know, that's something professionally you have to deal with when, you know, somebody calls you to take care of their loved one, and then they ultimately have a bad outcome. And in this case, something I couldn't predict, something I don't think necessarily I could have prevented, uh, but it takes a toll on you. I mean, it, it just... You know, as a human being, um, it's funny, like I can remember right around that time hitting this period where I, I felt like I had so much experience with this disease that it bred a level of familiarity that I was getting good at it. You know, I was getting good at, you know, saving people, so to speak. 
And, and this experience, you know, basically let me know that, you know, uh, God above is the only one who really has that power. And I'm just a, you know, a simple messenger trying to do your best at the at the ground level. And so it was a real, you know, eye opener for me. And it and it kept me measured, you know. As you mentioned before, we've seen coronavirus cases rise in the last several weeks. I'm wondering, what is the environment at the hospital right now? It is getting worse, and it's going to get a lot worse. Unfortunately, as you're seeing in other parts of the country, it is back to the days of New York City, uh, unfortunately, but a hundredfold. You're seeing it in Wisconsin, where military tents are set up for portable hospitals. You're seeing in California now, you know, inpatient uh, admissions are exceeding bed capacity and staffing. There's not enough nurses to take care of these people. God forbid that happens. You're literally going to have a military setup where they triage people. If you're not salvageable, you will be laid in a cot to die effectively with no care. I mean, that those are really sort of difficult military-type decision-making processes that communities are now about to face if this trend doesn't either plateau or reverse itself. South Carolina is unfortunately headed in that direction. I mean, Greenville just had over 300 positives in that county alone. And um, I could only imagine what they're seeing in their hospitals right now and the stress it's starting to place on the staff that's going to happen to Charleston very quickly. We're, we're unfortunately going to get back to July in January and February because the numbers are headed there and people are just not mitigating the way they need to be. And some of it is the, the false bravado created by the vaccine now. And people are just ignoring the obvious, wearing masks, distancing themselves, limiting large group gatherings indoors. And we're going to get hurt, you know, and it's coming. Now, does it bother me? It bothers me in the sense that people aren't wise enough to understand that we're going to lose another probably 300 people in the Tri-County area in the next two to three months because of their inability to internalize this risk. You know, it, it is coming. And, and uh, you know, I'm prepared for it because this is my fourth surge. So I've not let my defenses down. Everybody I talk to knows we're looking at continuing this until probably July of 2021 minimum, because even if you vaccinate half the people in the country, you have to wear masks for three to six months thereafter to see if the vaccine actually works and, and transmission comes to a complete halt and there's no new pockets of infections that are occurring that would still lead to high-risk people getting hospitalized and ultimately dying. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not going to be a good January for myself or my team. Um, but it is what it is. And again, you go back to that military analogy where the guys in World War II did this for, you know, four to five years. Is it, you know, I'm not here to judge people. I'm just here to deal with the ramifications of their actions. But any of them need to to get an eye-opening experience, then they can come into this COVID unit and look around. 
you know, to start with me rolling into that Starbucks at 5 a.m. when nobody's on the street and when it's dark out and roll into that parking deck and you show the first security guard, he doesn't need my badge. He's like, Doc, stock, get in there. And, you know, you, you start on seven and you work your way. You work your way down, and and every day, you know, the girls give me my list. And every day there's, you know, five to ten new faces on that list and, um, you know, new challenges to embrace and to endure and and, and new directives to be given to, uh, you know, basically make sure they get the care they deserve. And uh, we know Thanksgiving was bad and we know Christmas is going to be just as bad because, you know, the undertone from people is they're all getting together. I mean, there's going to be a lot of travel, a lot of group settings. A lot of virus came back to Charleston, I can tell you that, from Tennessee, from Georgia, from uh, North Carolina, Virginia, you know, I take these histories on every single one. This is a very, very resilient enemy. And, uh, you know, the virus doesn't care about your politics, doesn't care about your willingness to comply with mitigation, doesn't care about all these things. All it cares about is finding a human host. You know, well, obviously we, we all look with high hopes for the new year, which is the nature of New Year's. We are going to be taking a very, very deep dive for that first quarter, and we are really going to have to make some hard decisions. Reporter Jennifer Haas spoke with Dr. Stock and other frontline healthcare workers for our 2020 Newsmakers of the Year feature. We will include a link in today's show notes to that piece. Before we wrap up today, we're going to bring you a few moments from Understand South Carolina episodes from throughout this year. First, for our June 25th episode, we interviewed Bernard Powers, a professor emeritus of history at the College of Charleston and the director for the Center for the Study of Slavery. That day, the statue of John C. Calhoun that had towered over Marion Square for more than a century came down. It was a process that took much longer than was expected. It went all through the night into the morning and into the next day. And it it took so long that the moment that the statue came down actually happened right when we were talking to Dr. Powers about the significance of that moment. It's a very significant event. And let me me just tell you uh, just a quick little story. When I went to register to vote in 1992, the county election offices were over there in the old the old Citadel building. And so when I walked over there from my office over at the college, I walked very close to the Calhoun statue and looked up at him and kind of grinned because I knew I was going over to do something that he never would have allowed, never would have been favor of and thought to myself, yes, he's got to be spinning in his in his grave. You know, this object has been an object of revulsion and anathema. It has inspired disdain on the part of African Americans in the community. 
since the very first one went up in, in 1887. It clearly, uh, it embodies an individual whose entire life revolved around, around slavery. Uh, and not just that, but uh, one who was one of the main architects of the pro-slavery argument. So he, he reveled in slavery and believed that it was the best of all possible foundations upon which to build a society. Excuse, uh, excuse me, just one second. Okay, my wife is telling me the statue, they're taking the statue off. She was, she was just excited. <laughs> yeah. 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 Excited. yeah, no, we've been yeah. waiting for this yeah. all day. Yeah, I'm waiting for it. All day and night. Right, right, right. Throughout the year, and especially in the fall, we had conversations on this podcast about the 2020 election. And in particular, we talked about South Carolina's Senate race, which was record-breaking. It was unexpected, too. In April, we had an episode about how Democratic challenger Jamie Harrison was outraising incumbent Senator Lindsey Graham. Then, as Election Day approached, we revisited that conversation again because political analysts were saying that the race was going to be closer than people had initially expected. But as we learned from political reporter Jamie Lovegrove the morning of November 3rd, the results played out differently. It was a landslide. We're still waiting to, to see some votes come in, but as of right now, I'm looking at it, we have a 14 percentage point lead for Lindsey Graham, 56.2% to 42.3% for Jamie Harrison. I mean, if Lindsey Graham is able to hold on to 56%, that is a higher share of the vote than he got in 2014. Of course, Jamie Harrison this time raised north of $130 million. So it is just uh, a remarkable outcome. And I can certainly say that even Senator Graham's campaign, his staff, his biggest supporters did not expect a blowout of these kind of proportions. Also after the election, we spoke with Kristen Graziano, who was just elected Charleston County's new sheriff. She was the first woman ever in South Carolina to be elected to that office. We asked about how this year, which was marked by protests and calls for change, influenced the changes that she wanted to see within the department. So Emily, the message I had going into this campaign was well before George Floyd. It never changed. What it did in, in the wake of George Floyd's death and in May 29th is it got louder. You know, people started listening to not the mess, not just the message that I had of, of how we needed to, you know, move forward in law enforcement and how we needed to treat people, but the message got louder because other people were saying the same thing. My voice has never been that loud. I'm pretty low key. I, you know, I'm pretty much behind. I love doing the busy work. That's, that's where I uh, really thrive. And, um, but when these, when that happened on May 29th, and it actually happened before May 29th, protests didn't start with George Floyd. It started before that, but, but really that's when it got loud. And that's when everybody started saying the same thing. And then people started listening, um, you know, to what I was saying. And, and then together, um, we agreed that we needed to listen to one another. And I think that's part of our probably townfall in law enforcement is you know, it's it's a very difficult position to be in because you don't, you're expected to get it right every time. You have to get it right because people's lives depend on it. And when you don't get it right, um, it's it's very difficult to say, hey, I, you know, I didn't get it right and you need to fix this. 
So we need to take responsibility for that. No, not my officers, our, our deputy sheriffs in Charleston County didn't do this. You know, they didn't cause this, but they represent the uniform that did and the people in those uniforms that did. And that's what people see. It's not a personal issue. And I had, I really had to really readjust my thinking of that, you know, just over the years that these protests are not a direct assault on us. They're, they're an assault on a system that has oppressed so many people. And we have to use that as, as our fuel for change. And, and I think a lot of people understand it. Sure, there are skeptics in law enforcement that are just hard chargers and say, no, that's not, that's not the case. But we have to do it. Uh, because I've said it before, until we have tangible change, there will not be peace. I know that to be true to this day. And finally, throughout this year, we've been keeping you updated on Rising Waters, the Post and Courier's project covering flooding in real time. We recently caught up with reporter Tony Bartlemy to talk about the full year of the project and what he learned and what he hoped readers got from it. There are three or four important takeaways, I think. The first one is that climate change is happening. And of course, climate has always changed, but here's the, the real difference and the real thing that's happening is that the pace of change has increased. So the seas are rising faster, the rain is getting heavier, and we've got to deal with that. The second thing is that our community's future viability is at stake. So we need to take it, we need to take action. And the third thing is that it's doable. We have an ability to find solutions we just need uh, a vision and leadership to make that happen. Thanks for listening. And thank you so much for listening to our show throughout this year. I can't tell you how rewarding it has been to put this together for you every week. I hope this podcast has helped you understand and process this crazy year of news because that's what this show is all about. I would love to hear your feedback. What would you like to hear more of in 2021? Send us an email at understandsc at postandcourier.com or tweet us at understandsc. You can also let us know how we're doing by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much and have a happy and safe new year. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.